0: Hello and welcome. I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency from Senate to City Council. We wanted to thank you because the down ballot just crossed the 1,000 subscriber mark on Apple Podcasts. We are really grateful to all of our listeners for helping us hit this big milestone. My co-host David Beard is off this week, but joining me on the program today as guest host is Democratic operative Joe Sudbay, who you may remember because he subbed in for me on a previous episode. We'll be talking about the Attorney General's race in Arizona, which just got called for the Democrat, as well as Proposition 308, which allows students to receive financial aid regardless of immigration status. Then we'll head over to California to discuss two huge counties that both saw their boards of supervisors flip to democratic control this year. And with the battle for the house winding down, we want to mention a couple of Democrats who fell just short this year, but that we'd love to see try again in 2024. And finally, we will discuss what the GOP's very small margin in the House means for Kevin McCarthy's prospects of becoming Speaker. We have a supremely fun show for you ahead, so please stay with us. Well, I am so excited for today's show because I get to invite on to guest host with me. Joe Sudbay, Democratic operative, a very, very astute political observer, and also a frequent host on SiriusXM. He has had me on various shows on the radio before, so now finally getting to turn the tables. Joe, it is so great to have you back here on The Down Ballot.
1: It is very exciting to be back. And David, I was thinking the last time we spoke was about 4 a.m. Eastern time on November 9th when I was doing the overnight coverage on Sirius XM Progress. And you texted that you were still up. And I said, let's talk. We had so much fun that that
0: morning. (laughs) It was terrific. (laughs) Joe, I was so tired and also so pumped in a way that I just never expected, because I think we all pretty much thought election night was Kinda gonna suck, if not worse. And then it turned out to be awesome.
1: It was so awesome. And it just kept getting better, too. I mean, we thought we wouldn't have a call in the Pennsylvania race for days in the Senate race. And there it was at like one o'clock Eastern. It was terrific. And, you know, the the house races, there were so many house races that I was keeping an eye on that the kind of the DC pundits and prognosticators were predicting we're gonna go Republican, starting in Rhode Island's second. Congressional District, they were convinced. The New York Times was convinced Alan Fung was gonna win the Republican, he didn't. South Magazine pulled it out. The races in New Hampshire, those really set the tone for the rest of the evening. Um, Both the Senate and the two house races in New Hampshire, big wins up there and it just really set the tone. It really was a a, a fun night. It was still, I feel like we're still riding the wave.
0: I mean, we still are. Overtime is now entering its third week but we just finally wrapped up the vote counting in a huge, huge race that would be a flip for Democrats if it stands up. So we obviously have to talk about what just happened uh, in Arizona in the attorney general's race.
1: Yes. On Monday, the final votes came in, in the attorney general's race. And Chris Mays, the Democrat, is ahead by 510 votes over Republican Abraham Hamaday. Now, this was remember, Democrats won the governor's race. They won the Senate race. They won the Secretary of State's race. This one was closer than all of them, and but it's a really important win. It's a flip. It, if it holds up, you mentioned there will probably there will be a recount, a mandatory recount because it is so close. Um, but there are a lot of experts, including Nathaniel Rakich, who was on the show. The down ballot the last time I was hosting, he noted that the median shift in statewide recounts since 2000 is about 267 votes. So it does look good, you know, but I, I just was very excited about this one. Hemaday is a really, he's an extremist. He would have fit right in with um, the Ken Paxton's and now Chris Kobach, who's the AG up in Kansas. That kind of extremist ran really ugly ads, ran using the invasion rhetoric about uh, immigrants on the border, and defeating him, it's just so sweet. And let's just hope it holds as the recount goes through. We'll know that after December 5th.
0: What makes this even more amazing, as Axios reporter Jeremy Duda pointed out, this is the first time since 1978 that Democrats in Arizona will have won. The governorship the secretary of state's office and the attorney general's post it is remarkable that the top offices both senate seats as well in this state that was a red state for such a long time the home of barry goldwater and one of the cradles of modern day conservatism is now blue and of course it's only really really light blue a lot of these races were really really close but now that democrats hold all these posts we can be pretty darn sure that Republicans, no matter how hard they try, are not going to be able to steal Arizona for Donald Trump at 24.
1: That's really important, and you know the other thing is uh, I know we always say this: we always say every vote counts. But in a state where two and a half million people voted, over two and a half million people voted, the race for attorney general is 510 votes. It every vote does matter. Republicans have done so much over the years and around the country to prevent people from participating in the electoral process. They don't want you to vote, but voting really matters. And we will now have a Secretary of State and an Attorney General in Arizona who believe in voting, who believe in the integrity of the electoral process. That is really, really super important.
0: Well, maybe the most amazing thing that Republicans have done to suppress the vote is to literally kill their own voters by promoting vaccine skepticism, hostility, and refusal. Now, I think it got really overblown by a lot of folks, the extent to which the COVID death gap might have played a role in the 2022 midterms. But healthcare writer Charles Gaba has tracked this sort of thing very, very closely and has come up with estimates of the excess number of deaths of Republican voters compared to Democratic voters uh, across the country and state by state uh, that have uh, found support in other studies by other organizations. And so, He specifically took a look at Arizona, and according to his conclusions, which seem quite strong to me, there were probably about 4,000 excess Republican deaths compared to Democrats in Arizona as a result of COVID vaccine refusal, or at least in large part because of that. And like you just said, Joe, 510 votes. Well, that's smaller than 4,000. What a bitter and sad way to lose. But we warned about this. We told them not to do this. You're killing off your own voters. If for no other reason than that, you should encourage them to get vaccinated. Well, they didn't. And here we are.
1: Absolutely right. You know, it's it's not surprising, but it is surprising. And it's, it's still stunning. It's just, it, it brings you back to those days. And we're still in a lot of COVID denial. But I, I you know, also Charles Gaba. Shout out to him because he's one of the only other people who really focuses on down ballot races, um, trying to raise money for them. And and, and I appreciate that because not enough people do, as you and I have discussed many times. David, I want to stick in Arizona because there was another, there was a ballot measure that uh, I just have to say it's near and dear to my heart, Proposition 308. It allows for in state tuition for non citizens of Arizona. It was In in 2004, Arizona passed a proposition that prevented essential services being provided to undocumented people living in the state. It was one of those vindictive things that a lot of Arizona Republicans did. You mentioned last week when you were talking with David Beard, you were talking about Arizona, SB 1070, that horrific Papers, Please Law. That really set in motion a lot of organizing that really has gotten us to the point where we were able to have the elections we had this cycle. And Prop 308 passed 51-49, a little over 51-49, a really big win. It was put on the ballot by, um, through the legislature, which was a Republican-controlled legislature in both the House and the Senate. Reyna Montoya and Jose Patino, they are founders of a group called Eliento, Arizona. They worked it through the legislature. They went through several sessions trying to get it on the ballot. They were rebuffed repeatedly and told it couldn't happen. It wouldn't happen not to do it. They got it on the ballot. A big win. And what's really remarkable about it is, you know, I do a lot of work in the immigration world. And Arizona really has been ground zero in many ways, starting with prop, I mean, SB 1070. But the ads this cycle from the likes of Blake Masters and Carrie Lake were so vicious and so horrible and so xenophobic uh, that it didn't work. It didn't work. And pile on top of their ads, Stephen Miller with his, what, a probably $100 million super pack, right? Of
0: just pure- I even got one of Stephen Miller's uh, stupid mailers. I live in New York City.
1: It, they, were, they spent so much money. I was driving up the Interstate 95 from um, Boston to Portland And there were billboards all through New Hampshire with horrific messages. Now, I knew what they meant because I was like, "Uh uh-huh, that's going to be a Stephen Miller. And it was Citizens for Safety. They spent tons of money in Arizona and lost. And this was, this is the issue. It it does set the stage. We know that the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, DACA, is on life support. Uh, The federal just. District court judges that were picked, handpicked by Ken Paxton and other GOPAGs are going to get it found unconstitutional. They've got a case moving up to the Supreme Court. We have the next few weeks in Congress to maybe get it done. I think that Prop 308 gave a lot of impetus to showing that voters actually do care about this, even when there's a deluge of money spent against it. So Big shout out to everyone who worked on it, particularly Reina and Jose. I love them. They are total badasses and they have made the world a better place for so many young people in their state.
0: It really is amazing. And to pick up on something you said, Joe, Republicans were so sure, so sure that they were never going to have to pay a price for their extremism. And, you know, to be honest, I really wondered if they would myself the, you know, traditional media has done such an abysmal job abetting them because this whole, you know, supposed neutral journalism, both sides journalism, you know, makes it seem, well, you know, Democrats say that migrants are human. Republicans disagree. You know, I mean, like, that's essentially where we are on most issues. And they paid a price. And no matter what happens in every election for the rest of my life, I will always remember this and be grateful that they were so disgusting and extreme that there were voters in the middle who said, no, this is this is just too much. And I think Arizona from almost from top to bottom is almost the perfect example of 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 exactly that rejection of extremism.
1: Yeah, just one I agree with that wholeheartedly. And the as much as they attacked immigrants, they also attract trans kids. I mean, among the most vulnerable people in our population. And it was so vicious and so cruel. And that didn't work either. And you know, I will say, David, I saw um, reporters on Capitol Hill saying that Stephen Miller walked into Kevin McCarthy's office last week, obviously, to plan more strategy. And this week, Kevin McCarthy is down on the border doing more photo ops and stunts. Stephen Miller still controls the GOP message and you know what I say keep listening to him Republicans. The only the really serious problem is that there's a death count attached with their ugly yep. messaging. Yep. That is something yep. that the media and also, David, the media has responsibility for and culpability, but every corporate pack that donates to Republicans who run those ads own it too.
0: Yep. I mean, what just happened in Colorado Springs, it's on them. What happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, it's on them. And we could spend another hour reciting all the things that are on them. So as much as their hateful rhetoric might be harming them at the ballot box, it's also harming real people, uh, and 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 like you said, leading to a death count. And for that reason, uh, we can never cheer it on. Uh, and 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 I think everyone listening also knows that um, it's it's a disgusting phenomenon, and we need to fight it and beat it back, however we possibly can. And
1: we did beat it back this year, David, at the ballot box, and we've got to keep that up because that's that's how we that's how we do it more than any other way.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's something that you and I have always been devoted to as the most important thing that we can do as activists is, is, is beat them at the ballot box and and win power from uh, top to bottom. And that's perfect segue for us to talk about a couple of totally different races uh, a little bit further to the West in California, where Democrats won some amazing successes. So Orange County, that, of course, is the hugely populous county in Southern California that has been talked about quite a lot in recent years, particularly starting in 2018, when Democrats flipped a large number of House districts in the area. They gave some of them back in 2020. But the long-term trends in Orange County, don't call it the OC, are heading Democrats' way. And... We know this because this year, for the first time since 1976, Democrats managed to take control of the Board of Supervisors in Orange County. They now have a three to two majority. And in fact, prior to 2018, it was a 5-0 Republican board. And just to put that in in a little further context, since 1936, when FDR won his massive landslide first re-election, no Democrat for president won Orange County until Hillary Clinton did in 2016. And now uh, since 2016, that was only six years ago, Democrats have now flipped the county board of supervisors. And that's not the only big county in the region where they've had success. In fact, in Riverside County, which is not too far away, Democrats also just took a majority of the Board of Supervisors. Strangely enough, the... head of the board was a libertarian, believe it or not, who uh, might actually have been the highest ranking libertarian elected official in the country. Anyhow, Democrats managed to beat him, and so they have a 3-2 majority on that board as well. And what's really remarkable is that Democrats actually lost both counties in every statewide race in California this year, but still showed enough local strength that they flipped both of these boards. And there's also something else that I want to add, you know, there are a lot of election analysts out there who love to obsess over counties. They Talk about Republicans winning, you know, so many more counties than Democrats. This is certainly something favored on the right as well. There's Donald Trump's ridiculous, stupid map that he supposedly printed out and gave to reporters. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. saying, impeach this, showing all the red counties and the tiny little blue slivers. And of course, you know, anyone with any sense knows that that's BS because land doesn't vote. People do. But let's talk about people riverside and orange counties are enormous riverside has 2.4 million people it's the 10th largest county in the country orange county has 3.2 million people it's the sixth largest county in the country so when we talk about republicans flipping counties it's almost always these really small counties there was a lot of obsession about some small border counties in texas in 2020 but you know let's talk about the riversides and the oranges because that's where the people are absolutely
1: You know, um, it's really a big event when these things happen at the local level. You know, Tip O'Neill famously said, all politics is local. And again, Democrats winning at the local level, it creates a farm team, it creates good policy, it creates a record to show they deliver. And those are the hardest jobs. Many of those are the hardest jobs because you have to deliver for your constituents. I'm really excited about this. And- you know, David, I've been around in politics for a while. I knew about Orange County because of Ronald Reagan. And I knew we were going to be talking about it. So I was Googling around to see one of Reagan's last appearances as president. He gave a it was at a campaign rally in Fullerton, Colorado in 1988. In the first lines, you, he said, you are living proof of something I've said over and over. Orange County is where the good Republicans go before they die. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Ronald Reagan. I just love the fact that this county that Ronald Reagan loves so dearly is turning blue. And um, thank you to everyone who made it happen.
0: Well, and also let's not forget who else is from Orange County, Richard Nixon oh my from Yorba Linda. Yes. I mean, I, I love the thought of Nixon spinning in his grave right now. <laughs>
1: It is such, it's so great. And, it. it, you know, this is, this is, it's the changing America. um, And California has been on the forefront of it. Uh, You know, when I was doing politics back in the day, California had Republican governors, Duke Majin, um, Pete Wilson, Republican senators, they had, they had some of the worst congressmen, Bob Dornan, who was like one of the most vile congressmen to come out of. Any state, and then of course oh, you can't. be one Bob, right? And Dana Rohrabacher, who was there until recently. I mean, it's really great to see what's happened in that state. And you know, I keep hearing uh, Republicans around the country say we don't want to be like California. You know, it's a state with one of the best economies in the world. It feeds the world. There's, it's got Silicon Valley. You could be so lucky, Texas. You could be so lucky, Florida, to be California.
0: Um, I couldn't agree more. I certainly love it out there myself. You know, Joe, since we're talking about Riverside County, there's a House race that's uh, on my mind. You know, Daily Coast Elections, we asked on Twitter this week, which unsuccessful Democratic candidates for House this year should try again in 2024? We got a lot of really great engagement, uh, a lot of Excellent ideas. And one of the names that came up most frequently was Will Rollins, who ran against Ken Calvert in California's 41st district, which is based uh, in Riverside. And I thought he ran a great campaign. And I know you would love to see him try again in two years time.
1: Just a terrific candidate. He's gay. He first time candidate at this level, ran a terrific race. You know, it was an uphill fight, Uh, always is running against an incumbent. And especially, remember, this year was supposed to be a terrible year. He came very close to um, pulling it off. And I, you know, I I think there's this thing, I, I actually think when candidates lose and they run at this level, it's actually a good training ground and I hope he does run again. He lost by just about ten thousand votes, um, and we know there will be bigger turnout in twenty twenty four. I'm really hoping Will, Robert, will Rollins runs again. I, I've just I was just impressed with them. I, I, fought, I, I was following that campaign pretty closely. It includes Palm Springs, which is a, a, a big LGBTQ hangout, and uh, I think Will is definitely someone. I hope runs runs again.
0: Yeah, it was 52-48. This district changed a whole lot. You know, Ken Calvert had never had to run in a competitive district before. It still favored Trump slightly, but like you said, I think that the higher turnout in a presidential year should really offer a boost here. And one thing that I've heard—it's sort of—it uh, might be a little bit of a wistful silver lining for a lot of candidates, but. The best way to learn how to run a winning campaign is to run a losing campaign. I mean, there is no experience in the world, in the world that can prepare you for what it is like to run for office, especially federal office, these hugely expensive campaigns, meeting so many thousands and thousands of potential constituents, being in the spotlight, the glare of the media. And there is nothing that can prepare you for that other than actually running for office. And of course, every first time candidate wants to win their first time out, uh, no one's no, no, stupid. Uh, but Rollins now has a level of experience that really few people have had. And I think his performance also should uh, open eyes and that he should get a lot of more support from DC than he did this time because he really proved that he can run a real race and this is a competitive seat.
1: It's really important. And I, I feel like you know he learned a lot. He impressed us, and hopefully, moving forward, like you said, the um, National Democrats who can control a lot of money spigots see how close he came and how much how much of a great candidate he was. Um, David, there's an, another race that I hope that the Democrat who didn't succeed runs again, and that's in Arizona's first congressional district. Uh, the Democrat is Jevin Hodge. I got to interview Jevin over the summer when I was on SiriusXM Progress. I was so impressed with him. And I was following his campaign and checking it out and watching his ads. And there just was this sense of energy and a, a rarity that you find in a campaign, but joy. It just looked like they were having a great time and they knew their mission. He was running against David Schweikart. Uh, Republican who's had some serious ethical issues. He lost by just a couple thousand votes. And again, one of these candidates who came so close, and I hope that people can look at this race too and and realize this is a great recruit. Let's get him to do it again. I I was just super impressed.
0: Yeah. I think also this is an area in the Phoenix suburbs that is probably trending our way. And Hodge, would be the first black member of Congress in Arizona history. So that would certainly be a nice first to make. And yeah, I, I really think he would also be an excellent candidate to run again. And you know, on that Twitter thread, like I said, we got a lot of great suggestions. Democrats really had a pretty strong recruiting class this year. Especially given that we were headed into a midterm and people thought it was going to be like any other midterm, I think recruiting is going to be incredible for 24 because everyone, including Republicans, believes that Democrats can take back the House in two years.
1: Absolutely right, and you know, and there were some some very very close races in California, in Arizona, as we mentioned, but across the country there were close races. Obviously, your home state of New York. There are some very close races that need to be rectified in 2024. Yes. And it it, it does say a lot about candidate quality. We talked a lot about candidate quality at the Senate level, but I was able to meet a lot of these House candidates, and I was so impressed. Marie glucin perez up in Washington 3, terrific candidate. Oh, what a win. Right. And um, uh, and Gabe Vasquez down in New Mexico, too, who, you know, in the days before the election, everyone was like, well, that's going to be a Republican seat again. No, he won. He won. It was even he was even up in that New York Times Siena poll when they were telling us, you know, don't believe the New
0: York Times Siena poll. right? (laughs)
1: Yes. So, yeah, it was those those are some terrific wins. And the thing about both of those, um, Washington three and New Mexico two, they were pickups of Republican health seats. And that was really important.
0: So Daily Coast Elections just put out just a little bit of data this week, noting that when all is said and done, Republicans are almost certain to have 222 seats in the House, Democrats 213. There's one seat, California's 13th, still hasn't been called yet. Republicans are leading there. If Democrats can somehow come from behind, it would be 221, 214, even better for Democrats. But here's the interesting thing, and this is the data I'm referring to. Republicans in the 118th Congress that will be seated on Jan 3 will hold 18 districts that Joe Biden won blue seats or blue leaning seats. Democrats, by contrast, are only going to hold five Trump districts. So that alone will give Democrats a nice head start heading into 2024. Now, Republicans in North Carolina are going to pass a new gerrymander. They're going to screw us in a whole bunch of seats, maybe as many as four seats. We'll see what happens in Ohio. The New Mexico Supreme Court still is weighing a case. They might rule against the map there. That would be very tough news for Gabe Vasquez, who you just mentioned, Joe. But the fact of the matter is that Kevin McCarthy in the coming Congress is going to have an absurdly small margin for error, if he's even speaker. And there are now five Republicans as of Tuesday who have either said They don't think they want to vote for McCarthy or emphatically said hell no on McCarthy. And five is the magic number because the most, the absolute most number of votes that Kevin McCarthy can afford to lose to another candidate is four because more than four and he falls below 218. That's assuming if they have the 222 seats, you need a majority of members present to win the speakership. It's not simply enough to beat the second place candidate. A plurality doesn't cut it. Now, look, who knows if these schmucks like Matt Gates can actually hold together, if they can increase their numbers by Jan 3. Maybe these are just idle threats. Maybe they're just posturing. If there's one thing that we know that Kevin McCarthy is good at, he is good at groveling. And he will almost certainly have to make all kinds of concessions to keep these people on board. And he was already going to be a really weak speaker, even if he was going to be speaker. And now his speakership is just going to be unthinkably feeble.
1: I just have to say, first of all, I agree with all of that. And Nancy Pelosi had 222 members, sometimes 221. Yep. And think of over the past few weeks, since it became clear that this may be the outcome. All we've heard from everybody is some variation of, this is going to be a shit show with Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans in control. We never heard that about Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. And what drives me crazy about it, David, how many times over the years have we seen the DC press corps run headlines, Dems in Disarray? They, you know, if Nancy Pelosi sneezes at a press conference, they'll that's the headline. Instead, Democrats in disarray. Actually, Democrats in disarray. And we have Republicans in serious disarray in the Senate for sure in their presidential race, but in the house, it is going to be a mess. And what's really important politically is you mentioned those 18 districts that are held by Republicans that Biden won. Those 18 are all going to be sucked in to the craziness and the drama. And the question is, do I mean, I don't think there's any such thing as a Republican moderate, but if you are one that's sort of moderate-ish and you're watching this play out, what do you do? What do you do? Do you decide that you think it's more important for you to win? So you're going to you know, show some independence or are you just going to go along with it? I think most will go along with it. They did, most of them did on January, after January 6th, but what the Republicans have been offering, they have offered nothing in terms of an agenda beyond investigations and impeachments and stunts and photo ops. That's all they have. And it's really going to be fascinating and, and to watch because I agree with you. McCarthy is a weak, weak leader. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. And they're all going to try and take advantage of him. And... You know, let's let's see what happens on um, gen, in early January when the vote comes. I it will be interesting to see if those hardcores stay strong. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And, you know, someone's going to have to cave here, or there's just going to be chaos. And I think it's going to be chaos either way. But um, it's, what a mess, what a mess. And and we can actually say, I actually saw a headline last week on Politico that used the words Republicans and disarray in the same headline. I actually tweeted it out with sirens saying, I think this is the first time I've ever seen it.
0: (laughs) Did an editor, was there there an editing mistake? (laughs) I mean, the, the contrast with Democrats could not be stronger. Look at this absolutely seamless, out of nowhere transition of leadership on the Democratic side I mean I thought Pelosi might call it a day and as sad as I am to see that happen the fact that she got Hoyer and Clyburn to leave the stage with her all at the same time there's just no dissent about this Hakeem Jeffries is going to be the Democratic leader when Democrats retake the house he will be the speaker and it's just such a stark contrast to the GOP and, you know, to your point about those, you know, congressional scholar Norm Ornstein says, don't use the term moderate. And he's absolutely right. Use the term pragmatist. And I, I think that fits better because you have hardcore conservatives who are nevertheless political pragmatists, whether that means they want to get something done in Congress and they're not just nihilists or they at least have a sense of political self-preservation. The problem for them, I think that right now you're right. I don't think they have a majority vote in favor of Looney Tunes ideas like impeaching Joe Biden. However, we saw what happened to all the Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump. Out of the 10 of them, only two are going to be coming back in the next Congress. So if you are a Republican member of Congress who decides, you know what? the general election is more important to me. I'm not going to vote for all these crazy investigations of Hunter Biden's laptop and impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas and all this nonsense. You might draw a primary. You probably will draw a primary. You might lose your primary. Uh, So they are just, I mean, a rock in a hard place doesn't even begin to
1: describe it. And they did it to themselves. David, with their gerrymandering and getting these ultra ruby red districts so that they can just go more to the extreme. And, you know, it's bad for the country. It's bad for our, it probably could be bad for our economy. It's bad for our reputation. Hopefully, it will lead to the self-destruction of this party because they have nothing to offer the American people. And of course, this is all going to play out against the backdrop of their one true leader running for president again. So um, it's going to we're going to have to pop a lot of popcorn over the next few weeks and months.
0: Ah, tell me about it. Let's get uh, Orville Redenbacher in bulk. (laughs) So, Joe, before we go. There is someone I want to give a shout out to. A little while back, we did a mailbag episode where we answered readers' questions, and we got a really great question from reader Ryan Dack, who asked us, how voters go about the process of casting ballots, deciding who to vote for in school board races, which are typically nonpartisan and you don't necessarily know a lot about the candidates. And it was a very good question, a lot of food for thought. Uh, Definitely uh, dig up that old episode if you wanna see how David Beard and I answered it. But the reason why I'm referencing this now is that Ryan was on the ballot for a community college governing board member post in Orange County, and he won. In fact, he kicked ass. He won 69% to 31% over his opponent. So congratulations, Ryan. You asked us an excellent question. We hope you have many more for us, but far more important than that. uh, It sounds like you won an amazing race. we wish you luck on the Community College Board, and hopefully just this is just the first of many victories to come for you.
1: Wow, congratulations, Ryan. I love that. You know, I, I just think these races are so important up and down the ballot, and everybody has to make sure, I know our listeners do here at the down ballot, and also I say this on SiriusXM Progress all the time, make sure you vote the whole ballot. So many people just go in and vote top of the ticket. Those ballot measures and candidates further down, They're not less important. They have more of a direct impact on your life in many ways. Make sure you vote the whole ticket. The down ballot is the whole game.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's exactly right. Joe, it has been awesome, awesome having you join me on today's episode of The Down Ballot. You can find Joe on Twitter at Joe Sudbay. And I know that we will be having you back on in the very near future.
1: What a what a complete pleasure to spend time with you, David Neer. I love I love the opportunity to talk to you. As I always say, whenever I have you on SiriusXM Progress, we're going geek, to geek out and do a deep dive. And I love being able to do it on your show as well.
0: We love geeking out and doing a deep dive here as well. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thank you. That's all from us this week. Thank you to Joe Sudbay for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Kara Zelaya, and editor Trevor Jones. We'll be back next week with a new episode.